This passage is from 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You may be seated. Good morning, Grace. Thank you, Kevin, for reading that for us. Uh, we are in First Peter chapter one. We are in our series in, entitled "Strangers in a Strange Land," and uh, as we we started off in this, we've been looking at the just the the context that Peter was. Uh, Peter is the author, as the Holy Spirit has inspired him to write this text, and he's writing to the Christians that are dispersed over the known world. And most of this uh, region, or actually all this region, is under Roman rule. And the church is going through great persecution. And many people are are capitulating, they're wavering, and they're giving in. And he's saying, be strong, be strong. And when I I think of being strong, as I was meditating on this passage this past week, I remembered a movie that I'd seen years ago uh, by M. Night Shyamalan, Unbreakable. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie or not. But I, I remember seeing it because it was the first movie of his I'd ever seen. Uh, it's, not necess- it's not for kids, but it's a, it's a film where uh, it's pl- the main character, uh, played by Bruce Willis, is, uh, finds out that he has, he, he really literally is unbreakable. He, he, he has this huge strength that he didn't realize that he had. And, and no matter what accident he goes through, and he goes through a train accident, he ends up being the only survivor. He's in a car accident when he's younger, and he's the only one that makes it through. No matter what happens to him, he, he just doesn't have anything happen to him. And, and the, the kind of premise of the story is he ends up being a, a superhero. He's unbreakable, kind of like Clark Kent, you know, Superman. I introduced my, my kids to Superman, the, you know, the cool version uh, from the 1970s. And, and they had no idea about who Superman really was. And here's this guy who's unbreakable, except for one thing. What is it? Kryptonite, right? That's his one weakness. And, you know, I think about superheroes, and I, I think about the election and everything going on, and, you know, sometimes we have this exalted view of our candidate. In some ways, we kind of apply this superhero mentality to them that they're going to somehow save us. And we put our hopes and dreams. Many of us do. And I remember being in a church in, uh, in Pittsburgh in, uh, after the last election, and on, on the next Sunday, um, it was right after the election occurred, Half the church was jubilant, and half the church was utterly depressed. And he walked in and he said, shame on all of you, because Jesus isn't in the White House. And no matter how much what happens, these guys are not superheroes, they're men. They're men. They're, they're faulty men. I've been studying a lot of history lately, especially in terms of presidents, and it's amazing to me how the, it's the same rhetoric every four years. Each one promises a better world than the previous candidate left behind, that everything's going to be rosy and great, and you're going to have all of these different things. But we know that as long as we're on earth, these human institutions and human individuals are going to fall. We're all going to fail. We're all going to fall. But the, the, our hopes and dreams shouldn't be tied to those candidates. It should be tied to Jesus Christ and Him alone. Because, see, when we put our our hope in, and sometimes the, I mean, we know that superheroes aren't real, they're fictional, but we know, we, we sometimes replace them with these politicians, and we know, though, that they're going to fail eventually, and we're going to be hurt, and our happiness, then, is dependent upon how they win or lose, and it shouldn't be that. Our happiness has no bearing 
And our joy has no bearing on who's in the White House. Now, I, I don't want to begrudge anyone and their presidential candidate. I think each has something to offer. Each offers something to us as individuals and us to a society. That's not my point. My point is, is for us to put on the lens of Christ and on the Word of God and to look at it all through the Word of God and to be discerning. To say that these candidates, though, human, though we should pray for them, whether our candidate gets in or not, the Scripture commands us to pray for our leaders. We're to offer them up in prayer. We have to understand that our happiness and joy is not tied to them because God will put His man in the office for blessing or for judgment because God is sovereign. So our happiness isn't tied to them. Instead, our happiness is tied to the person of Jesus Christ. And I, I think of how even the disciples had their happiness tied to Jesus, but after He died, they were depressed. I love talking, looking at the passage in Luke chapter 24 where you see the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and, they, and Jesus comes up and he starts walking with them and they're all down and they're talking in essence that, hey, he died and our hope died with him. And we're, we're down and depressed. We hitched everything to his wagon. And then he says, how foolish you are. You, you failed to believe the law and the prophets. And he starts to explain about who Jesus is and testify even to the greatness of the resurrection. And then he reveals himself to them as he's blessing the blood and they are blown away because they realize that their hope wasn't dead. It was alive. Our hope is alive. And that means that if our hope is alive, no matter what happens, we're unbreakable. Nothing can stop us. Nothing. Just as we saw a quote last week from the early uh, church apologist, by the man of Justin, uh, a man by the name of Justin Martyr, and he said this, you can kill us, but you can't hurt us. That's so true. No matter what happens to us, you can kill us, but you can't hurt us. And through Christ, we're unbreakable. It doesn't matter what happens in the White House. It matters what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus died and rose again. And Peter understood that, that they were going through the midst of persecution. And he said, because of that, don't, don't despair, my brothers and sisters, that you, have, you are unbreakable because of what Jesus did for you. Today, we're going to see how we are unbreakable, because I know that many of us don't feel that way. We feel turned and tossed on the waves of life, just kind of blown away, without anchor, without hope, and sometimes we feel like we're sinking. We just feel like we're going down. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Cling to me, and it doesn't matter what storm may come, that you will have hope and you will remain unbreakable. Now, I want us to look within our, our text, but before we really jump into it, let's take a moment and pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Our Father and our God, we come before you now. Lord, as individuals, as a body, and as citizens of an earthly country, but even greater citizens of a heavenly country. Lord, we pray your blessing on our time together. We pr pray that you might wash our mind through the reading and proclaiming and hearing of your word. And Lord, we pray for those that are going through times of great affliction, that are going through great times of trial or suffering. We pray that you might be able to, you might encourage them as we know that you do, just as you encourage the early church through Peter's words. Lord, encourage us. Help us to take great stand, a great stand of faith, to understand what this living hope that you have given us really truly means and how we truly might apply it to our life. Lord, help us to discover 
that we are truly unbreakable when we cling to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's jump right into our text and see. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. See, what I want us to see today is because of God's loving action in Jesus, we are unbreakable. And we are unbreakable because He grants us an awesome salvation. He grants us an awesome salvation. There's nothing better than this. No promotion, no degree of success, no degree of fame is better than what God gives you. There's nothing better than that. I mean, we have to realize that God has pardoned us to the person of His Son. Last night, I was, uh, I've been studying a lot of the U.S. presidents, and I watched a documentary on Richard Nixon. <laughs> okay? He was around a little before my time, but I, I, so I'm not as familiar with what was going on within his life. But as I'm watching this documentary, I mean, the only thing that I really knew about him would be what? Watergate. Exactly. That's all I knew. And so I'm look, looking about his long political history, and in a lot of ways, he did a lot of good things politically. But then the whole Watergate thing happened, and he ends up getting ready, you know, the beginning of the steps of impeachment and so on and so forth, and then he ends up resigning as president, the only man in history to resign as president of the United States. People were calling for his head. They wanted justice. And then President Ford did something that was unbelievable to many people. Do you know what he did? He pardoned him, right? Was Nixon guilty? Oh, yeah, he was. There was proof. The tapes showed it. He had to release that had been recorded in the White House. He was guilty, but Ford pardoned him according to his great mercy. See, he deserved another sentence. You know, we deserve our sentence. We deserve it. That we we have... put a full-scale coup d'etat in an unholy war against God, and God has granted us this unbelievable salvation. I mean, it is beyond our ability to even comprehend how great this is. It's not just something that we do by coming to church. It's an entire new life that we get. And it's something that we do not deserve, just as Nixon did not deserve that pardon. He didn't. That's why it's called mercy. It's withholding what we do deserve. See, grace is giving us what we don't deserve, and mercy is withholding what we do deserve. See, we, we have to understand our state before God. If we, could truly try to, if we can truly comprehend the salvation, we have to get a good glimpse of our state before God. We see then that this salvation is not dependent upon our condition. And I want to show you this. This is our condition before. We're going to get to this condition part here in a moment, but... Uh, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Every single person once lived in it in some way, shape, or form. We were, by nature, children of wrath. We worked for the enemy. We were part of this unholy coup d'etat that wanted to get God out of life. All of us were participants in it because we were born into Adam's family. We bore the mark of the fallen man. Though the image of God was there, it was tarnished. But we bore the mark of fallen humanity, and therefore we deserved and fell under God's wrath. 
God's wrath. I mean, that's amazing to think about, His wrath. I, I have so many people that I encounter that struggle with this. This past week, I spoke at Aurora University's InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And I got done, and a young man approached me, and he said to me, you know, I, I have a friend who left the faith, and he asked how he should interact because he was the God, uh, godfather, godparent to his child. And this man had, had left Christianity and turned to paganism. Complete paganism. I mean, paganism as a religion. And he said, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to interact. I said, well, do you know why he left the faith? He said, yeah, because he couldn't reconcile the God of wrath in the Old Testament with the God of love in the New Testament. And I said, well, it's not an either or God. It's, it is God. It's the same God. He said, well, he couldn't understand how God would command the killing of the Amorites in the Old Testament in this genocide. He couldn't understand it. I said, I understand where you're coming from. But I said, what we fail to understand is that God is also holy and loving and that he was waiting until the sin of the Amorites was complete. These were not an innocent people. These were people that had done very many awful things. And God is the righteous judge that knows the hearts of men and that no matter if he had them die of cancer or if he died of, through the hands of the Israelites, it's still him enacting judgment in some sort of way. It just the means might be different. And I said, not only that, God's wrath is also present in the New Testament, not just the Old. He, he looked at me funny. I said, except in, in the New Testament, it was Christ that took the wrath of God upon himself. See, there was the same wrath. It's just that Christ took it for us. So we see then that it's, it's not based on our condition, but on God's compassion. On God's compassion. Now, and, and for, that, for those that say, oh, this God of wrath in the Old Testament, uh, He just would smite many different people, but yet He's also offering mercy and salvation. You think of Jonah. Jonah. He is called to go speak to the awful, terrible Ninevites. He hated them. He hated this task so much that he got on a boat headed in the totally opposite direction. But God cared about them. So much that he wanted Jonah to care about them. That's the point of the story. Is when we see Jonah's just hating this task, he runs away. God uh, causes the, the ocean to congeal. And he, he despairs, tells all the crew that why, why, what is happening to them, or the reason for what's happening to them. And then he's thrown overboard. Fish swallows him. He stays in the fish. He repents. The fish, fish vomits him up, then he goes and preaches. And he has just a very simple sermon. Repent. Repent, because the wrath of God is coming. And, and what happens? The greatest revival in history. The greatest revival in history. And even then, he still wanted the wrath of God to come on the people. He still wanted it. So what does he do? He sets up shop right outside the city so he can have a front row seat in the biggest destruction man has ever seen. Got popcorn, got the shade, Got his drink. He's ready to watch this whole thing go down. And God causes a vine, remember, to be the shade over him. And then it wilts in a day after a worm destroys it. And he's angry because the sun's beating down. You ever be out in the sun and you just get irritated? You ever have those moments? The, the sun's beating down. You're hot. Things aren't going your way. And then you just get even more angry. And the person that, that Jonah is angry about is who? God. And, and, and God says to him, are you angry? He's like, I'm angry enough to die. And he says, why are you angry? <laughs> why are you angry? 
look, I, I want to have mercy on these 120,000 people that don't even know their right hand from their left hand. I mean, that's, that's amazing to think about. He, he has this compassion upon him. And the book leaves us hanging at the end of chapter 4. He just leaves us totally hanging because we want to understand, does Jonah enter into God's compassion or is he going to hold on to his hate? Because God is compassionate toward us. So our salvation is not at all based on any condition. We have nothing within us that would merit the blessing of God. Instead, we, we merit His wrath, but God provided the Son of God to take the wrath of God that was due us, becoming our substitute because of His great compassion. He has great compassion on us. Now, God is the active agent behind salvation, not us. Therefore, if God is behind it, then it can't be stopped. See, we are unbreakable because He gives us a living hope through His resurrection. His resurrection. Look at verse 3. See, the word for hope there in Greek is alpida, which means expectation of good, hope. And in the Christian sense, it means joyful of and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Now, the word living there is what's fascinating. It's zosan. Now, the root of zosan is the word zoe, which is also the name that the Septuagint gives to Eve. It means life. It means alive. So, But literally in Greek, it is hope that is alive. It's hope that is alive. Our hope's not dead. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. He is our blessed hope. It's all about Him. It all goes back to Him. It's not about our works. It's not about what goes on in society. It's about Jesus. He's alive. That's the unchangeable factor. He is alive. And our hope, if it's in Him, it is forever alive. Death can't touch it. It is alive. The, the word actually for living is used when it, to bring a girl back uh, in, in Acts chapter 9, verse 41, about a girl being brought back from dead to life. It's showing that he's applying the same understanding of what happened to Christ and His resurrection to us. Because of the resurrection, our hope is alive now because the object of our hope and faith is Christ Himself. Now, we see then that the present tense of this indicates an abiding quality. Now, what that means is Christ's resurrection afforded us a hope which enables us to have life in the here and now and, in, and eternally. As Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, look at this verse right up here. John 10.10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's the understanding of eternal life, but also life in the here and now. That's what Peter wants us to understand. This life comes only the result of, though, the new birth. Notice that he has, look at the phrase, caused us to be born again. Now, who is the active agent behind that? Is it us? No, it's God himself. Now, it's actually, instead of caused us to be born again, it's actually one word in Greek. And it's uh, anagonesos. It's an aorist participle active nominative masculine singer. Don't you feel so blessed for knowing that? Uh, but it means that, that salvation occurred in an undefined point in time. That's what aorist means, the aorist tense. It's undefined, meaning that each of us have our own salvation point in time. It's different for all of us. But he caused us to be born again. The Father brought us into the new life of Christ, but he is the active one doing it to us. 
We didn't do it to ourselves. We don't become born again because of any action of our own. It is God working faith within us to believe. He births us into His kingdom by giving us the faith to believe. Faith itself, then, is a gift. What have you, as Paul said, that you have not received? He bursts us into His kingdom by giving us the faith to believe. Now, there is a tension because we are called to repent and believe, but we cannot repent and believe unless we are given the ability to understand what it is we are repenting and believing in. But when God births us into this new kingdom, we can see that, we can see that His resurrection then affords us a new beginning. That's what it means. We have His resurrection enabled us through Him to have a brand new life. That's why Jesus said in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Paul also makes it abundantly clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus gives us a clean start. Do you, do you know that? He makes us white as snow. That's why I love the Psalms. Where it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. We have the North Pole and the South Pole. We know where the, once you're in the North Pole, you have nothing, every direction you're facing is south. Once you're at the South Pole, every direction you're facing is north. But there is no pole to delineate between the east and the west. As far as it is for the east from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions or our sins from us. He gives us a brand new beginning. How many of you need brand new beginnings? We all need like divine mulligans. We need that new start. But even then, because some of us, we understand too well that we started well in Christ, but then we fall. It's inevitable. We're all going to fall, just like little children on bicycles. As soon as that hand lets go, very rarely does that child be able to balance perfectly right away. They crash. We're all going to crash and fail. See, this is where we now have grace and we have an advocate because we've trusted in Christ. Jesus Christ, the righteous, as 1 John chapter 3 says. And then we now have this grace that we enter into that continually comes upon us as we repent of our sins and ask Him to forgive us, that we are then cleansed. See, what's going on here is this living hope is not only referring to this born-again nature that is there, but also a new state of being. Write that down. That's letter B. Right under that point. We're new state of being. This living hope enables us to have hope in the here and now because we're born again. It's at the starting line, but then to run that race in a new way. That's what we have going on. So we have a new state of being, a new hope, new joy, new purpose, an entire new way of life. That's what the resurrection does. It transforms us. I think about my own father. I, uh, my, my, my father died when I was four years old. If he would have been living, my parents would have celebrated their 49th wedding anniversary on uh, the 1st of November. And I, I remember talking to my mother about when my father came to know Jesus. And she said, it was, she goes, it was so transformational in his life, Travis. I can't tell you. It was like I was married to a stranger. Because the new life that came into him was so different than the old life that he lived. And she said, I, I didn't even know how to interact with him at first because he was such, he had all these desires that we never had before, that he never had. He wanted to go to church. He wanted to read the word of God. He wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. He couldn't stop. 
And I consider that such an honor to, to be able to be the son of a, of a man who had that faith. I know he only lived for a few more years after that. I'm still grateful to be a beneficiary of it. And it's laid an example for me that once you do come to know Christ, you have a, a brand new state of being, a new way to look at life, process life, to deal with struggles, to deal with pains, how we look at success, what our pursuits are, how we handle our money, how we handle tragedy, how we deal in the day-to-day struggles of our lives with our, with our children and our grandchildren and our spouses and our classmates and co-workers. We have an entirely different new way of life. God helps us to break free from our past, change for the present, and gives us hope to live for the future, future because our hope is in Jesus and He is alive. God did that. He did that because of His own mercy. And He enables us to be unbreakable. Now, we're also unbreakable because He guarantees us an inheritance beyond our imagination. He guarantees us an inheritance beyond our imagination. Peter says there, notice the word, he says that we have an inheritance waiting for us that is kept in heaven for you. Now, the word for inheritance is used actually seven times in Scripture and can refer to a proper property already received as well as one that is expected. But here, this inheritance refers to that which is kept for the believer, not on earth, but in heaven. It what awaits us. Now, what is it that awaits us? Peter uses some really cool words here. He says, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Well, what, what does that mean? It means that our inheritance is, first of all, untouched by death. It's untouched by death. Death can't take it away from you. It's already there waiting for you. See, it's interesting. The Egyptians had this wrong. I, I told you that I've, I've been able to go to the Egyptian museum um, in uh, Cairo, and I've been able to see all of the vast treasuries that were in King Tut's tomb. And he had all of these things that were, he was to take with him to the afterlife. I mean, he had a chariot. He had his summer furniture. He had, uh, he had his organs that they taken out and put him in these things called canopic jars and he had like even beer and meal and food and had all this stuff that he was to take with him and how much did he take with him zero nothing zero see that's not what our treasure is it doesn't consist in those possessions that we have and no matter how much we might have it stored with us with our bodies we don't take it with us we leave it behind See, the inheritance that we have is untouched by death. And it doesn't stay rooted on this earth. It's also unstained by evil. It means it's undefiled, which means pure, without evil. No evil can get to it. No person can affect it. No person can violate, steal, injure, or destroy it. No one can take away what God has given you. That's amazing to think about. It's unstained by evil. Our inheritance is also, notice the next word, it's unfading. Now, the Greek word used here is actually used for flowers. Over the years, I've bought my wife flowers. And I don't know what your wife or significant other does, but my wife takes the flowers and she keeps them. She turns them over, she dries them out, and she keeps them. And, and I see these dead flowers. <laughs> and they, they're, they, she's, I'm like, why do we keep dead flowers? And she says, they're memories. But the more that we move or transport them, what happens to those flowers? They start to just break apart and, fall, and fade. 
But here, Peter's saying, no, 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 this kind doesn't fade. This is like a heavenly flower that's always in bloom, that's always beautiful, which means that it is unimpaired by time. Unimpaired by time. It doesn't matter how much time passes, it will never change. I don't know if you saw it this week, but on October 31st, the Sistine Chapel uh, turned 500 years old. And they, they talked about how Michelangelo had made these beautiful frescoes and he laid on his back for a period of years to paint just these beautiful images. And this, uh, the Sistine Chapel gets 5 million visitors a year, sometimes 20,000 in, in a day. These people are coming in and they said that it's all of these tourists coming to it that's actually causing it to fade. To fade. So in 1994, they put in a restoration uh, like project and they put in a new... Um, filtration system in order to give to dehumidify it and keep the quality of air more pure but now they notice they're going to have to do it again and put in a new state-of-the-art system to keep it from fading because all those tourists that are seeing it are causing it to fade and I, i think that's a great thing for us that no matter what happens you know this world can't stop that fading process you realize that see but in heaven it doesn't fade no matter how much time passes it never ever fades It's kept in heaven for you. See, it all means that we have this unbelievable immortality. That's what Peter wants us to understand. We have an unbelievable immortality. We will experience life without end. In heaven, we will live forever. Now, some words aren't found in heaven. The word bored does not exist. I mean, we get bored easily, do we not? We get bored all the time. I mean, even when you're sitting in uh, the Bahamas in your chair with the sand and the palm tree, it's like, it's pretty cool for the first few days. Then after a while, you're like, there's got to be something else to do on this island. We get bored. We get bored. But in heaven, there is no boredom. There's no sickness. There's no tribulation. There are no trials. I mean, there will be no tears in heaven. We won't miss the old world. I've heard people say... If my son or daughter isn't going to be there, then I don't want to be there. Then I have to say that, I I look at them and I say, well, I appreciate that, but you're a fool. Because that means that you've placed your son or daughter over the Savior. And that when you get there, you're not going to think about those things. You're going to delight in who he is. And I hope that your son or daughter might share in it. But there's not going to be that sense of loss, sorrow there. We're going to be in his presence forever and ever. We'll have unbelievable immortality. We'll also have unmistakable purity. Unmistakable purity. I think of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when his, his garments are transfigured or transformed and become more whiter than any uh, laundry detergent or bleach of this world could bleach them. I mean, it's glowing white. That's how It's going to be so pure in heaven. Not everything's going to be white. I think the full scale of colors are going to be there. We're going to see unmistakable purity and then unimaginable beauty of the things that this world are just a foretaste of. As Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. You know? Unmistakable or unimaginable beauty. Now, I think of beauty, I can't help but think of women because men aren't beautiful. And I think of women and, and ladies, If you're, you can testify to this, does beauty fade? I'm reminded of this uh, older woman who was, she was looking in the mirror late one night. She was noticing all the wrinkles, and her husband was sleeping in bed. And she said, honey, I have all these wrinkles on my face, 
and I, I think I'm getting fat. And he says, she says, honey, I desperately need a compliment. He says, your eyesight's excellent. <laughs> That's when the fight started. <laughs> but this is a beauty that does not fade. You don't need any more makeup. You don't need any anti-aging cream. You don't need any of those things. In heaven, there's a beauty that doesn't fade away. I like the song by Chris Rice. It came out several years ago. It's called Deep Enough to Dream. I'm going to show you this. He says, Deep enough to dream in brilliant colors I've never seen. Deep enough to join a billion people for a wedding feast. Deep enough to reach out and touch the face of the one who made me. Oh, the love I feel and oh, the peace do I ever have to wake up. He talks about how he falls asleep on a summer afternoon in his porch and he dreams of heaven and that's what he sees. And I think that's pretty, pretty, pretty realistic. And colors you've never seen, of which the, the colors and the spectrum are just a foretaste. Sounds that we can't comprehend. Feelings and experiences of that this world only is a foretaste of that greater. I mean, this world, it's just like being at a symphony. You ever seen a, been at a symphony and got there early? And people are playing their instruments. They're trying to tune it. And it sounds awful. But then when the performance starts, it's grand. See, this world is a tune-up for the praise and joy that we're going to experience in the symphony of heaven written by the divine maestro beyond our ability to comprehend or understand. See, that's what heaven will be like, seeing unimaginable beauty. C.S. Lewis dramatically illustrates this in his book, The Great Divorce, talking about the divorce between uh, like heaven and hell. And he says, uh, he says this, he imagines, first of all, a world in which between, between heaven and earth where those are on their way to heaven and some are on their way to hell. And while in this world he encounters a beautiful woman almost beyond description, he writes this, I cannot remember whether she was naked or clothed. He sees her and he's just beyond belief how amazing she looks. If she were naked, then it must be the most almost visible penumbra of her courtesy and joy which produces in my memory the illusion of a great and shining train that followed her across the happy grass. If she were clothed in the illusion of nakedness is doubtless due to the clarity with which her inmost spirit shone through the clothes. For clothes in that country are not a disguise. The spiritual body lives along each thread and turns them into living organs. But then he, he goes on and he says, a robe or a crown is there as much as one of the wearer's features as a lip or an eye. But I have forgotten. And only partly do I remember the unbearable beauty of her face. Is it, is it? I whispered to my guide, not at all, said he. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. He says, she seems to be, well, a, a person of particular importance. Aye, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. See, what he's saying there is this person lived a life that not everyone would know about. She wasn't a politician. She was kind of behind the scenes, but she was seeking God above all things. And that enabled her to have a beauty in the, here, in the hereafter that was beyond his ability even to see. Because we see the purity of her spirit being brought out at that moment in time. There's an unbelievable beauty that accompanies it. Accompanies it. This woman lived for heaven. Or as C.S. Lewis said in another place, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Or as Jesus said it better than any of that, 
He says, and in heaven, uh, he says, for where your heart, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's a treasure that doesn't rust or destroy. Nothing can take it away. See, look at verse 4 and 5. Peter writes, Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, the Greek word for guarded is a military term. And it's a present passive participle, meaning that it's an action that has been being done to you in the present time. See, it is an action that you did not do. You don't guard yourself. Who guards you? God does. God is the one who guards you. <clears throat> and He guards you through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, the word for salvation... Uh, simply just means that. And it indicates deliverance or preservation bestowed by God, more specifically, deliverance from His wrath at the final judgment. What I want us to see there is that God guards us until our consummation, till we get home, till we are with Him forever and ever at the end of time, in the last day. He guards us until then. See, this past week, there was a uh, Hurricane Sandy came out. I mean, obviously, we all know that. And there was a talk about the tomb of the unknown soldier. And that these soldiers, no matter what comes on, no matter what storm or thing happens, they stay on guard. Did you know that? It's been the same since April 6, 1948. They've been doing it for 365 days a year. And they stay on guard, round the clock, 24 hours a day, walking the mat is what it's called, guarding the tombs of these unknown soldiers from World War I, World War II, and the Korean conflict. And these guys are this epitome of example. And if you ever have a chance to go and witness this at Arlington National Cemetery, to see them and the precise nature in which they guard and they stay on duty and they keep doing it, and only a select few have done it since 1948. Now, they, they, uh, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, this is a society that, of which they're a part of, and they said that you know when weather does come up, you know, we do have provisions in place to in, uh, make sure the welfare of the soldiers, that they're going to be okay in case of inclement weather. They put that caveat on there. Even though, no matter what weather has come at them, they still haven't left their post. So, you know something about God? He never leaves His post. He's always on guard. He has been on guard at all times. I love what Psalm 121 says right here, 3 through 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God is always on duty. He is guarding that for you. It's not like that game you play as kids. You ever played steal the bacon or capture the flag? You've got to get in there and steal it. See, Satan can't get into heaven and get behind God's back door and steal it. It's there forever. He's always on guard. It can't be taken. That's what this word indicates. There's soldiers that are on duty, guarding what He has given unto you. It is for you. Now, how are we guarded? We are guarded by the power of His Spirit. The power of His Spirit. Look at verse 5. It says we are being held by God's power. Now, the word there is dunamai. It's used 26 times in the New Testament. And each time it is used, it is used to describe an act of the Holy Spirit. We are guarded by the power of His Spirit, and the power of His Spirit is at work in us. As Philippians 2, 2, 12-13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So we're to work at it. But, for, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. How is God working in us? Through His Spirit. Think about it. What does John say in 1 John 4, 4? He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. God is in you. God has placed His Spirit within you to make you stand against all the trials and tribulations that you go through at your workplace or in your family. That no matter what comes your way, that it doesn't affect you. As Justin Martyr said, you can kill us, but you can't hurt us. We are unbreakable. That no matter what persecution comes your way, no matter what slight you might have, you are unbreakable. It is amazing to think about. As, as the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, about the Spirit, <clears throat> Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be, we'd be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He was prepared for this very thing, is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. See, the Spirit is to give, it's, it's a, a, a benefit, a, a guarantee of what is, it's a deposit. That's what it is. It's a deposit of what is to come in the hereafter. When we will see Him as He is. When we take off these earthly tents. When we take on that inheritance that is undefiled and unfading. As John said in 1 John 3, 2-3. Because see, when we get into this glory, we're going to see Jesus as He is. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be what? Like Him like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure that's same that's the same hope that peter spoke about to see this hope enables us to live purely cooperate with his spirit working in us and then continuing in faith see that's the real key to being unbreakable it's persevering by faith as saints persevering by faith as saints look at verse 5 who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. See, that's that glorification. That's that salvation to be revealed in the last time. See, salvation has three parts. You Actually, if you think about it, it has four. But there's justification, the moment that we are declared legally righteous in the sight of God. There is sanctification, where we are positionally uh, being... We are positionally holy, but there's a progressive nature to it. We are progressively becoming like Jesus. And then the the end part is the glorification, when we get to glory. It's like running a race. You know, there's the moment that you enter the race. You have to run the race, and then the race doesn't end until when? You get across the finish line. See, that's what the glorification aspect is. See, we are... We are runners in the race that God has allowed us to be runners in the race. We are justified, that we are sanctified as we're continuing on, getting closer to the finish line, and then we complete it. That's when we are glorified. We were glorified. We refuse to listen to the, the naysayers, mockers, and compromisers who totally, continually 
harp at us and carp at us as we're running along. We continue to press on. Why? Because we're unbreakable. As the Bible says in Romans 8, 31 through 39, one of the greatest encouraging verses and passages in all the Scripture for those that are going through a hard time, the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit writes this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, who can stand up to God? Who can stop God? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Is there anything? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, death can't take it away, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God is for us, we are unbreakable. Right? If God is for us, you are unbreakable. If God is, is called us to Himself, we are all unbreakable. The only way that we are broken is if we don't abide. See, we are to abide in Christ. When we don't abide, that's when we get discouraged and we feel broken. When we kind of lose track of holding on to the vine... We lose that. And God, by His Spirit, brings us back, holds us on, that we can abide. We are more than conquerors. We are unbreakable. If you have Jesus Christ in you, if you have repented of your sins and believed in Him, you are unbreakable. That no matter what happens to you, no matter what tribulation you go through, no matter what struggle you might have, that can't be taken from you. They can hurt us. I mean, they can kill us, but they can't hurt us. Hurt us. And maybe you're here today and you say, hey, I am breakable because I don't have Jesus in my life. Then you need to, just like we all do, is repent and believe and trust in Him and offer, ask Him to be the, live, the Savior of your life. Then you will enter into that living hope, that living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray as we transition into our communion time. Our Father... Lord, what an awesome salvation you've given us. It's, it's beyond our ability to comprehend. We don't even have words that we can formulate, the concepts in our mind, to truly be able to even grab an nth degree, one pixel of the picture, the divine portrait that you have given, with us, given us within your word to see what we have waiting for us. That no matter what may come, it's there. No matter what trial or tribulation, no matter what problem or pain, 
no matter what danger or difficulty, you have enabled us to have a salvation that is beyond our ability to comprehend. Lord, prepare us for eternity. Help us to see that this world is not our home, that our citizenship truly is in heaven. Let us not become down, trodden, and depressed when our candidate doesn't get in. Lord, help us to have the right perspective if our candidate does. But help us to see no matter what, no matter what may come, that our hope ultimately is in you. You give us the hope necessary to endure all kinds of horrid tragedies. Lord, please, as we go through this life and as we suffer, may it be for our sanctification that your power might be made available and seen within each one of us. Lord, I pray for each person here as they go back to their homes, as they go to their schools or their workplaces, as they go to situations that are beyond their human capability to understand or endure. Lord, by your Spirit, give them the perseverance and strength necessary to go through it so that and, and, and go through it in such a way that your name and your power might be seen in them and people might be drawn to the Savior of the world who is alive and not dead. Lord, grow us as individuals, grow us as a church, and help grow this community that your name might be seen in us and that your name might receive great glory, not because of anything we have done, but because of what you have done and what you have purp- purchased and purposed as we continue to serve your name. Guide us, guard us, and use us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.